there's an expectation on on new graduates and recent graduates to to get to that level really really quickly and it's taken those clinicians a long time to get to that level of clinical expertise Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir, and I want to ask a simple question. Why did you get into dentistry? We're always asked that. We're asked that in our interview before we even start, and usually it's to help people. And how can we have a big impact? Well, day-to-day dentistry, we're having a big impact on one person at a time. But the big way we can make a huge change is multiple people through health advocacy. And that is, of course, what Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft is doing through the ADAVB and through all his health advocacy work. This was a really great interview. We went through so many different things. Everyone out there probably knows Matt and his work through COVID-19. He's been one of the key players in the ADA, particularly ADAVB, in getting the information out there, communicating with government, communicating with us, communicating with the public. It's a big role in a very challenging time. And I think this has really made us realize what ADA does for the profession. In this podcast, we talk about how Matt got into dentistry and also how he got into cooking. Um, we talk about his practice in the army in the first seven years of his his uh, practice after dentistry and then how he found himself in academia and research. Obviously, that led him to MasterChef eventually. And this was a huge um, time in his life, of course, and a time that built his personal brand and something he was able to leverage into health advocacy. Now, oral health advocacy is something that he's very proud of and involved in and um, making a bigger change than just that single patient. Now, obviously, that's not for everybody. And personally, I'm glad he's doing it because uh, I prefer the one-on-one dentistry. Um, but his changes are, are making a big impact. And particularly through the ADAVB, as he is now the CEO of ADAVB, um, and we've heard a lot of him in recent years because of COVID-19 in particular, um, we touch on mental health as well. And that's something, as you know, um, I think it's really, really important. It's close to my heart. Um, We touch on one of our our new uh, supporters of the podcast, which is the Dental Support Service. And finally, we touch on the ADAVB's new podcast. So if you like audio content just like this, they are now producing a podcast as well. And you'll be able to hear this interview there as well. Um, That's called Dental Central. You can find it on all the normal channels. This was a fascinating journey through Matthew's life and what he's doing and his advice for students, graduates and all dentists. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's get to the interview with Professor Matt Hopcraft. Hi everyone, welcome back to Erica's Corner where I keep you in the loop with everything that's happening. This week, it's giveaway time. A few weeks ago, we ran a survey to learn about how our listeners listen to the show. We got such an array of responses and so we've decided to have some fun with it. Thanks to our sponsors at Ripe Global, we have a standard annual membership up for grabs. Valued at $531, this includes over 200 hours of dental education from world-class educators, all available from the comfort of your home as we battle through lockdown. So what's the challenge? We want you to get creative with how you listen. Many of us listen whilst driving to work, others whilst exercising or doing chores around the house. Perhaps you've combined it with a new lockdown hobby you've picked up. Knitting, painting, filling tooth Legos with composite resin, you name it. To enter, check out our Instagram and follow the instructions in the post. We'll announce our winner this Thursday, the 19th of August at 8 o'clock, so don't miss out. Don't forget to stick around to the end of our episode to hear our recap on the giving project. But in the meantime, enjoy this week's talk with Dr. Matt Hopcraft. As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. 
You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional, and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes, and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. I'm really excited to have this podcast here today with Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. It's uh, really great to be here. It's um, As I said, I am really excited because um, you're someone who's making big changes in the industry. You're, you're really advocating, you're doing a lot of things, slightly a different path to a lot of people in the health promotion um, and even some interesting stuff uh, on national TV with some cooking. Obviously, we'll cover that. So which was your first love? Was it cooking or dentistry and oral health? Oh, gee, tough question, <laughs> tough question to start with. Look, I mean, probably, well, probably cooking in some senses, actually. I mean, and the love of cooking is really born out of a love of eating for me, right? I, <laughs> I, 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 I do love food. And, um, you know, as a kid growing up, um, you know, loving to help mum out in the kitchen and, you know, the, the the best part of, you know, getting to lick the beaters after the cake was made and learning to cook for mum. And I, I grew up in country Victoria, so... Uh, you know, I got into things like cooking cooking sponge cakes for the local um, country shows, those sorts of things. And then when I went to, to university, I obviously had to move out of home. And so you develop a necessity to cook because you have to eat. And there's only so many two-minute noodles that you can eat before you kind of need to up your <laughs> cooking game. So, yeah, the cooking probably a little bit before the oral health. So my my learning to cook was like I'd moved out and I had magoring noodles for about a year or two um, and then actually ended up as a cook in a cafe. It's a very long story, but um, <laughs> yours sounds a little bit more structured and a little bit better um, planned, I guess. Yes, yes and no. <laughs> yeah. So obviously mum was a bit of an inspiration from the cooking side of things early on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, dad and the barbecue and, and uh, you know, like like most people growing up in the era that I grew up, it was it was dad on the barbie outside. Um, or mum with with most of the other cooking inside. So definitely uh, both of them as, as very inspirational uh, from a cooking side of things. And then, you know, I mean, I have a, a, a whole family full of people who are really into cooking, a, you know, a brother and a sister who were both, um, or, you know, one who still is a, a home economics or a food technology teacher and, and one was for a while. So, yeah, food's, food's always been, um, you know, a really big part of, of our life. I love that. And like you said, it's born from a love of food and eating first. Exactly. <laughs> so how about dentistry and oral health? Where did how did you get into that? Yeah, I mean, so you know, like like a lot of people in our profession, um, I I developed an interest in in health, I think, at a at a relatively young age. And and I'd kind of convinced myself that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I I did work experience um, when I was in about year nine or year 10 at a local GP. And it was kind of interesting, but you couldn't do much you couldn't see see much um i remember at one stage my dad broke his leg and i was into the hospital with him taking x-rays with the doctor and you know developing them and doing all sorts of things like that so i was really fascinated with this idea of of health and helping people um and then for me it was sort of a a, a chance um 
well, it wasn't a chance visit to the dentist. It was a, a planned, you know, regular visit visit to the dentist that, that you have. Um, and and my local dentist, um, a big shout out to, to Jeff Woodhouse, um, you know, he asked me, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. It's going to be great. You know, I get to help people. And he, you know, to paraphrase Jeff a little bit, but he said, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> you know, it's great, but you know, think of the long hours, think of the the excessively long time that you need to study. Um, dentistry is really great and you get to help people and you, you you do all of those sorts of things. Why don't you come down and do work experience for me? So I, I did. Um, and, you know, I sat there for the first day in the corner of the room watching everything that he did. And at the end of the day, he said, look, I hope you're paying attention because for the rest of the week, you're going to be my dental assistant. And so for the rest <laughs> of the week, I was chairside with him and and it just was a really great immersive experience where I got to see exactly what a dentist did and, and in a way that you don't get to see when you're a patient um, and it was all of the behind the scenes things and you know the discussions with patients and seeing how he was helping people seeing how happy people were with great treatment outcomes and I you know I was just hooked um, and so from from then on it was yep dentistry is the thing that I really want to get into. That's really interesting, actually. I had a slightly similar path. I um, did work experience and then became an assistant. And I think that, as you said, immersive experience made me understand what it was I was getting into. And yeah, I fell in love with it from there. And, and I think, well, let me, you know, I think what's really important there too, and that's a very common story for so many of us, is, is something that it's really then valuable for us to do is to to share our sort of passion and experience with with um, you know kids at school, um, and and you know how do we how do we encourage the next generation of our profession coming through as well? So I think we've all got that opportunity to um, you know be that that mentor for for some uh, high school kids. And, and one of the things I, I still love doing is getting out into high schools, and I really encourage people to do that. Go out to high schools to careers days and talk about about your passion for oral health and see if that rubs off onto a few people and, and get them then get them into your clinics and help them out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Your passion for that is obviously we can see it everywhere and you're making big changes because of that passion. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into that. One of the things I love most is when you're talking to a young, um, you can tell they're motivated student and they you can show, you can be that mentor and they're probably going to leave an impression on them for the rest of their life. You can change more than their oral health. And yeah, maybe they're not going into dentistry, but maybe just motivate them into wherever they're going. I love that. So um, obviously that experience then into dental school. How was dental school? And then tell us a little bit after that. Dental school, uh, well, you know, dental school was fun. And I, I went through dental school in the in the early 90s. Um, so a very different era to, to, you know, what dental school is like now. And it's, and it's interesting for me too, having then left and, and come back, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this later, but, you know, having worked at at a dental school for a long period of time as well, seeing how things have changed quite significantly over sort of 25 years of, of dental education. But I, you know, I had I had fun at dental school. I probably had way too much fun uh, at, at times. And the people <laughs> no such who thing, knew, right? knew me at the at the time would, would certainly attest to that as well. But um, you know, we I, I was really fortunate at, at, at Melbourne University. You know, we had a, a great school, a, a great bunch of um, lecturers uh, and clinical staff and, you know, great cohort of people to go through and, you know, really enjoyed that experience of, of learning how to, how to be a dentist. Yeah. Tell us about those um, changes that you see, perhaps from, you know, you, when you went through and now. Um, anything that's key there, anything that you think is um, for the better or for the worse, perhaps? 
Oh, look, I, I mean, probably, you know, some of them are, are technological changes, um, you know, from a, from a dentistry perspective. So, you know, materials have changed and, you know, techniques have changed, you know, from from uh, traditional endodontic treatment through to, to rotary nitai. You know, implants were something that we were we were learning very much from a theoretical basis, but no, not at all from a practical basis. So, so much of, of the technology of dentistry has changed but then the way that things are taught I think this has changed and you know we we went through a very didactic kind of approach and and you know blackboards and overhead projectors and I still remember lecturers with um, 35 mil slides and for those of you who are listening who don't know what a 35 mil slide <laughs> is go, go and look it up yeah. um, and and you know so the way that we that we teach and you know more problem-based approaches to learning the, the access to information that we have now, and I still think back to days sitting in the library, scouring through um, indexes of, of journals, trying to find a paper. Um, and now we see information published today and available to you tomorrow. Um, so the, the amount of information at your fingertips is just enormous, which is great. And it's also challenging for people because, you know, how do you get your head around all of that information? Um, and then I think changes in in simulation uh, and the way that we can train people in the early years of dental school. You know, we we spent time trying to get extracted teeth and practicing on those, and some of the you know the sort of the three D haptic technology that that's being used now is just just amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on an interesting point. Um, is that the technology of dentistry is changing as well and the amount of um, procedures and the different ways you can do things. And I think that poses a big challenge for um, new graduates is you come out and often you're thrown into a practice with CEREC, but you've never used CEREC or you know what I mean? Um, do you see any other major challenges for graduates as they graduate into private practice? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's definitely a challenge. But I think also the, the one thing that hasn't changed and, you know, you, I remember talking to people when I graduated 25 years ago and the conversation doesn't change over the years is that your learning curve is enormous when you come out of dental school. And I think everyone has a, this, this perception in their mind that, that I'm going to graduate knowing everything. <laughs> and then and yes, you laugh because you've been there. I've been there. <laughs> you, you graduate and you realise that you actually know nothing. Um, and, and that doesn't matter what era you practice in. And it's just that the learning curve of what you're doing is, is different. For, for each kind of, I guess, generation that's going through. And so I think the important thing for everyone to remember and, and probably one of the other big changes that's that's both, I think, you know, a, a, a positive, but it has a negative as well, is social media. Um, and, you know, we see so much great dentistry now that other people are doing that that I would never have seen my, my exposure as a new graduate to other people's dentistry was the patients walking through the door and the, the and the treatment that you'd seen provided in their mouths. Whereas now you can go online and you can see all sorts of stuff. And I think there's an expectation on, on new graduates and recent graduates to, to get to that level really, really quickly. Um, and I think what we've all got to remember is that it, it's taken those clinicians a long time to get to that, that level of, of, clinical expertise and and for many of them they're still going like we 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 we're on a we're on a we call it dental practice for a reason we're always practicing we're never we're never perfect and i think we're always striving to to get better so that i think the the advice i think for people there is really 
if there's if there's something in your practice that that you've not been exposed to, like CEREC, for example, you you don't have to be and you shouldn't have to be using that straight away. Um, let's focus on the the nuts and bolts of of good dentistry, and, and you know one of them is communication, um, talking to patients, getting your fundamentals of diagnosis and treatment planning right. Um, and then you'll build those other skills along the way and, and don't feel like you have to be able to do everything right now and do everything amazingly right now. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. You bring up social media. It's like looking at someone who's 10 years out expecting to be as good as that is like be kind to yourself. Of course not. It's good because, you know, it's 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 there to, to, yes, to yes. give you something to aspire to. Absolutely. Um, but don't. Don't see it as being something that is, you know, you, you have to be there now um, because none of those practitioners, you know, they, they didn't sort of pop straight out of dental school and, and do treatment like that. It, it does take a little bit of time, but that's, you know, that's one of the great things about the profession too is that that lifelong journey that we're always on to strive for uh, improving the, the, the quality of care that we deliver to our patients. Yeah, and that progression is something that gives us happiness as well. Like that's part of the fun of dentistry. I want to just touch on something um, you mentioned, which was that learning curve is steep when you come out. And I think it's something I like to mention this because I think it helps me when I was in this stage is that all the people before you, like we've all gone through that. It's always a challenge, but we get there and, and you will too if you're a student who's about to graduate and where you're feeling the stresses of the first year. It's like it's a steep curve, but we will get there. Reach out to the friends, reach out to people on social media, and and it always helps. I think so. And you know, in a practice environment, you're there um, with with mentors and with friends and and people that can help you along the way. You've always got that, and as a student, you've got that as well. And that if you think about your journey through dental school, that learning curve is there as well. You think about the first restoration that you ever did, and the first extraction that you ever did, and the first you know, the first whatever that you that you do in dental school. Um, and then the second and the third, and you get better every time. So it, it is, you're always on that learning curve um, and you just have to, to bear that in mind throughout your, throughout your career. Well, tell us about your first, um, you know, when you graduated, what was your first job? And do you remember your first patient or two? I, I don't remember my first patient. I'm 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 not great with um, some of that <laughs> some of that sort of remembering stuff. But my first job, I, I joined the the army when I was in fourth year of dental school, um, and that was partly born out of living away from home and um, you know needing to support myself. And the army had a, a great scholarship scheme. They they paid for um, you know books, accommodation, um, university fees, and they paid me a salary. So I was you know the best paid dental student in, in final year, um, and I had a guaranteed job, so I didn't have to worry about job hunting through final year. So it was it was a great um, way to get through dental school. Um, but then from a work perspective, it was fantastic because I went into an environment where. There were other other dentists with a little bit more experience, like like you know any practice environment that you go to. But we also had a a lab on site. We had a couple of technicians uh, on site as well, um, and you know really good supportive environment. But at the same time, uh, being in the army, a whole lot of other stuff going on as well. So lots of lots of um, physical activity and sport and social stuff. So uh, I I was supposed to do. Uh, two and a half years in the army. I stayed for seven because I loved it so much. Yeah, I love that. What was the biggest lessons you got from the army? Oh, so many. Um, I mean, I think, you know, probably discipline um, was was one. I think teamwork is is was a really critical one. And I think one of the really interesting things about our profession is 
is the isolation that we sometimes feel. Um, and, you know, you spend um, a whole day, a whole week in a clinic. And although you're seeing, you know, 20 or 30 patients, a, a, well, maybe not 20, 30 patients a day, but um, depending on where you are, but, you know, you're seeing all of these people, but really um, you're so focused on the work that you're doing that, that the personal interaction is, is not always that great. Um, and so for me, where I've been, I think, really fortunate in a lot of the work that I've done, and as much as, you know, a lot of it has been clinical, um, also working in organisations like that where you do feel part of a bigger team um, has been really beneficial, I think, for me. And leadership, I, you know, there's a lot of leadership sort of stuff and and it's it's funny the way the world works, I guess. You know, I, I, I sit here now in the job that I'm doing now and it's not something that I would have ever planned for myself or thought that I would would ever do. But I guess my career along the way has, you know, been a, little, a lot of building blocks um, and building skill sets and, and developing myself in certain ways that now allows me to do some of the stuff that I do. And so, you know, career advice that I, I give to people often is, you know, do things and see where that leads you and you'll gain something from that. Um, learn something about yourself, get a skill set, um, and that may or may not come in useful for you later in life. So I never sort of anticipated that um, being in the army and, you know, being in, in some very sort of formal, I guess, um, leadership type roles and and um, training would come to benefit me at some stage. Um, but, it, but it has. So, yeah, I, I, a really, really valuable experience for me. Yeah, you touched on some fantastic points there. It actually reminds me of something, how you said your career has been building blocks and reminds me of something that Jesse Green, a mentor of mine, um, he he always talks about, you, you can't see the top of the stairs, but take the first step. Um, and it's the same concept. It's a building block. But also, and I was going to touch on that as well, the camaraderie of, of the army. Like I was not in the armed forces, um, but obviously we hear this a lot from all the people who joined the armed forces, especially early on, um, is the camaraderie of that and it's a big organisation. But then obviously you transition into private practice after seven years. What were the challenges you noticed with that Noticed with that transition? Well, I, did, I, I didn't transition oh, okay. into private yeah. practice. <laughs> did you go straight to, okay, yeah, straight to, yeah. So, well, so while I was, while I was, while I was in the army, I, I spent time and I, I, I had a couple of postings. I was up in country New South Wales and Wagga for, for a couple of years and then they sent me back to Melbourne and then for my sentence, they sent me back to, to Wagga again and then over to Perth. But all through that time, I was doing some part-time work in, in various practices. So I did some work in, in private practice um, in, in country Victoria and with a um, Aboriginal community health centre in, in rural New South Wales. So I was getting um, experience in a range of practices. And I think, you know, the, the army experience was really good from a clinical point of view because patients weren't paying for care. It's a little bit like the public system, um, but not constrained with some of the financial issues that the, that the public systems have around the country. Um, but you miss out on that conversation about cost of care with patients, which I know is always a, a, a challenge for people. Um, so I was getting that in in, in other sorts of ways. But um, I, I, I fell into doing some research almost by accident when I was in the army up in, in Wagga. We were treating all of the army recruits uh, around Australia and the buses would come in from Sydney or from Melbourne or from Brisbane and, you know, 50, 50 new recruits, mostly sort of 17 to 25 years of age, would roll off the bus and effectively what would happen to them is they'd, they'd roll in, someone would shave all their hair off, they'd go and get some medical checks, some immunisations, and then they'd roll on down to the dental clinic and we'd take 
um, we'd do an examination, get bite wings, OPGs, make everyone a mouth guard. Uh, and so we were doing, you know, 200, 300 dental exams a week uh, of all of these army recruits. And what became really apparent to me was when a bus came in from Melbourne or Sydney, there was very little caries. And when the bus rolled in from Brisbane, which at that stage was um, unfluoridated, um, we were seeing lots and lots of caries in these kids. And it, and it was really that obvious. You could tell where the, where the bus had come from just by looking in the mouths of, of, of these 20 or 30 recruits that came through the door on that particular day. And it prompted me to, um, to do some research and, and for, the, for the sole purposes of, you know, as a dental student, you're citing all of these papers, and I thought, you know, it'd be great one day if, if some poor dental student had to cite a paper <laughs> by Hopcraft. <at> a, <laughs> so I got in contact with one of my old mentors at the dental school, and I said, look, you know, we've got this opportunity to get some great data. And at that stage, there was there's a lot of stuff about water fluoridation and, and caries in kids, but not a lot in adults. Um, and I thought, look, this would be interesting to just do. And so we started doing that that project, and it sort of morphed into doing a, a master's by research project. And so and this is a, the building block concept that, you know, I, I did something for no real purpose, um, but developed a, a, a skill set and a qualification out of it. And so years later, when um, when we'd been posted to Perth and, um, you know, we moved there with a four-week-old baby, um, and, you know, that was obviously challenging from a family perspective, and thinking, you know, it's time to to perhaps end my time in the army and, and go out into the uh, into the civilian world. A job opportunity came up uh, back at Melbourne Uni, teaching both public health and, and general practice dentistry. And you know, lo and behold, I had a qualification in in kind of public health and research. And so that opportunity, um, you know, worked out for me. And and so I went from the army. Uh, into that role at the university, and I kept, you know, I kept my hand in with some private practice work along the way for for a number of years. But it was a, a less hard transition, if you like. Well, it was a different transition. It was, you know, into academia, which was, you know, might have even been more challenging than private yeah. practice. <laughs> it's got its own challenges for sure. Um, tell us a bit about your education journey. Thing. That's a fascinating story. It's really great to learn that actually. But so obviously, dentistry, and then the path we just discussed. You've done a, a bachelor of arts and then the PhD. Tell us about that journey. No Apparently, I like to study um, yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's lifelong learning, right? Uh, so, the, the 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 masters, you know, it was that was that research project, and it really was, um, you know, it was fascinating. I'm fascinated by research, um, and I think most of us in the in in the dental profession have very inquisitive minds. It's it's kind of the nature of the people that we are. Um, and so that that really interested me. But the other thing that that interested me, you know, and and I think it's something that's that's a challenge, maybe not for all of us, but when we make a decision to go into dentistry, and it's partly I think the you know the people that we are, um, we're very focused on maths and sciences as as people, and that's where you then have to focus your education in high school in order to get into dentistry. And so you sort of strip away the humanity subjects as quickly as you can to focus on the maths and sciences. And also, I think, you know, we are predominantly um, good at those subjects. And so you focus on the things that you're good at. But I, I felt somewhere along the way that I'd missed out in my education on some of the, the humanities. I've got an interest in, you know, politics and philosophy and, and those sorts of things. And so I um, I, that's that's where the arts degree came from is you know sort of trying to fill a gap in my in my 
knowledge base, I guess, around things that I wanted to know more about and, you know, things that you can just go out and read some books and, you know, talk to people and learn that way. But I wanted to do it a little bit more formally and, you know, again, probably learned some really valuable things in that process um, that have that have come to, you know, really benefit me. And then obviously when I was at, uh, you know, working at the university, um, in order to progress, having a PhD is, is kind of necessary. So, um, you know, th- that led me to um, doing doing the work that I did there on access to care in nursing homes and oral health in nursing homes, which I think is a, you know, really critical issue and something that's really come to, to light with the Royal Commission over the last couple of years and, you know, will be a strong focus of, of our advocacy work over the next few years, I'm sure. Yeah, anyone who's been into a nursing home to, you know, do any work, they know that that's a big challenging area. So I'm really glad to hear that. I'm curious, you might be a bit biased as a a through and through academic, but did you find that doing the Bachelor of Arts and doing it that way in the formal way of learning something outside of what you were, um, you know, practicing, was that the best way to do it? Would you do it that way again? Or would you just learn in a personal way? Uh, There's something nice about the structure um and i think you know and the accountability of it i guess th- yeah definitely um and and probably going into more depth um that way than you might in other ways i mean i i i, I struggle to set aside enough time for myself to read as much as i would i would like to and you know i always get um great book recommendations or podcast recommendations from people and you know listen to this or read that and and I try and do that as much as I can because I think there's so much information out there that you can that you can learn that doesn't seem like it's relevant to what you do in in your work, but you know a little snippet of it will come back to you at a point in time and it'll be really valuable. Um, so yeah, the the formal way of doing things and probably the age that I was when I did it um, really helped as as well. But you know, horses for courses, I think. Yeah, fair enough. And it's so true. You learn so much from the being outside, like dentistry, from outside of dentistry, I've learned more that's being able to apply to my communication or or then this podcast and business and other things. So it's so true. Very true. So with the advocacy and where you're doing, what you're doing now, you're working with the ADA advocacy group, some other major things in the um, public health realm. What is your mission there? What is, What motivates you to do that? My mission, my mission is to improve the oral health of everyone um <laughs> nice and broad <laughs> yeah, it's just, just something simple just something simple and easy and <laughs> yes exactly I, I so you know you think about you think about um you know what we what we're trying to achieve as dentists and why we all get into into dental school in the first place it's to improve someone's health and you know that's what i i really loved about going into dentistry from the outset was was improving people's health and then i've you know, drifted away from clinical practice where you're impacting on the health of a, a small community into the public health space where it's about trying to impact on, on the health much more broadly. And when you think about, you know, why we have so many problems from a dental health perspective, particularly from, from a caries point of view, but, you know, periodontal disease and oral cancer and all of those sorts of things, um, it's, it's the, for me, it's, it's, as much about the way that, um, I mean, we probably call it social determinants and commercial determinants of health, but there's so much external influence on people that impact on their health as much as there is about the personal responsibility for, for an individual. Um, and so I think as, an, as a clinician, 
you know, what you're trying to do is work with an individual person around improving their health and how can you get them to maybe reduce their sugar consumption or quit smoking and improve their oral health, uh, their oral hygiene. But from a community perspective, um, we can equally have really big impacts if we can do things like um, encourage uh, you know, cereal producers to reformulate their products so that something as popular as, um, you know, some of the cereals out there that are 25% sugar that kids eat every day um, goes down to, you know, maybe 20% sugar or 15% sugar. And being able to change things at a, at a macro level will have broad, broad, broad um, implications like water fluoridation. You know, if, if we can fluoridate a whole community um, and, and get as many people getting the, that, that sort of passive benefit of prevention, um, then we, we get significant benefits. And so for me, I guess the drive and, the, and the, the, you know, the passion around that is about how we can make some of those structural changes and, and look at where we've had success in health um, over the last 20 or 30 years and apply some of that into dentistry. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you're scaling your impact. Um, you, you know, you're helping more people and that's, and, but it's also something that you know, many of us get into dentistry because we love the hands-on and the, you know, being in the detail. And that's why it's so important to have people like yourself doing what you're doing. Um, I must admit, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> so well, but see, to me too, I, you know, I, I, the great thing about our profession is that there are so many different things that you can do and we need, we need everyone. And, you know, that's, that's people who are, who are, you know, hands on a clinical every day. And, you know, I talk to so many of my friends and, uh, and colleagues who just love what they do and, you know, are, are practicing dentistry so much because, you know, they, they love that patient interaction. And, and I miss that. I'm, I, I do miss the, the, that interaction that you have with patients and um you know that this the sense of fulfillment that you get when the patient walks out the door and you know that you've made a difference um but you know we, you know across academia and research and into advocacy i think there's a role for everyone and for me i, I think i've just kind of found my niche in the, in the dental world and i'm doing things that that i both love and i think probably you know fit my skill set so you know i'm i'm really loving it I love that. And you found your niche and it's a building block thing. So if anyone out there listening, thinking, not sure if I've found my niche yet, well, then it'll build, you know, take those opportunities, see where it leads you. You raised a really good point about breakfast cereal. Isn't it insane to think that some of them are quarter sugar? And you've made a group, well, a number of years ago now, the advocacy group, Sugar Free Smiles. Tell us a little bit about that and what the mission there is. Yeah, well... This is same mission. Um, this 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 same mission. You know, in but it, you know, raise awareness of of um, oral health issues and and you know that link between sugar and and you know try and get out there in a, in a public advocacy kind of way, both from a from a I guess from a community patient consumer point of view, but also from a policy point of view. But it really came out of um, you know this is sort of my my post master chef um, time when I was when I was. Um, unemployed and um, and uh, you know looking for things that I needed to to do, but a friend of mine um, came to me. And this is the the time when when Jamie Oliver in the UK was kind of really pushing um, a really strong uh, sugar tax uh, or you know tax on sugar sweetened beverages in the UK. Um, and there wasn't as much talk around that in Australia as there, as there should have been. And all of the talk on that at the time was really focused on obesity, as, as a lot of it was in the UK and in other parts of the world. Um, 
And and so we got to talking about the fact that, you know, really there was no one talking about that enough in Australia to, to link in with all of these other health groups and magnify what we were trying to talk about with a, a, a common message. And, you know, we talk about common risk factor approaches um, in, in healthcare, and it was trying to use that kind of concept. You know, we, we get a better message across when we can go to government um, or we can go to other, you know, to the community and talk about the benefits of reducing sugar because it improves, um, you, know, you know, reduces the impact of obesity or type 2 diabetes or cancer and of, of dental caries. And then when you look particularly at the stats around dental caries, um, you know, one in three kids have, have caries by the age of five to six years and tooth decay is the leading cause of preventable hospitalisation across all of the health conditions in Australia. So it's the, the, the impact of sugar is very immediate and very widespread. Um, and if we can reduce sugar consumption, we're probably going to see benefits in oral health much sooner than we'll ever see benefits in obesity and, and diabetes. So it makes sense for us to join that conversation and to advocate. So that was, you know, that was sort of the, the genesis of Sugar Free Smiles was to just put a, a branding or a banner um, on that on that advocacy work. And it's been really, you know, well, I won't say it's been really effective because I'm not sure it would necessarily change a lot of the world, but it's brought us um, into better um contact with a, a wide ranging group of people, the Obesity Policy Coalition and, you know, lots of, of key advocacy groups around Australia that, that I now work with on a regular basis. And we've now got all of those groups talking about oral health and, and whenever they're talking to people about the impact of, you know, reducing sugar and, and obesity for, for the Obesity Policy Coalition or cancer for the cancer councils, they're always now talking about um, oral health as well. And, you know, we, we get them to some of their campaigns have, have really effectively highlighted oral health. So it's, I think it's, it's raising the awareness of the importance of oral health. And that's been really a really positive thing. Ripe Global is an incredible resource, especially in these times where travel is a little bit difficult, but we're also realizing it's not always necessary for our education. Especially when we're starting our career, we just want to get as much as we can and a platform like Ripe Global's membership is perfect for that. But Ripe Global is a lot more than that. They've got the fellowship in restorative dentistry and while it's already started with the posterior dentistry course, they've just released the anterior dentistry course, one where you're going to learn about composites, aesthetics, isolation and indirect work as well. One of the hardest things to do in dentistry is the single front tooth and this course is aimed at helping you improve that skill. Find out more at ripeglobal.com or check out the show notes and you can get 30% off a membership all from the comfort of your own home. So obviously, um, sugar-free smiles is, is still a continuing and um, you know thing. Is it something that people can get involved with? It's, I mean, they, they they can. I guess it's it's more. I, I like to think of it as more of a a, a front organization or, yeah. or you know something that that um, you know it's it's a branding. Um, yeah, yeah. But but if certainly people want to get involved, happy for people to contact me. It, it is one of those things where. Um, unfortunately for me, I, I do way too many things all at the same time. And so it's, it's just, you know, late at night and on the weekends that I'm sort of, you know, trying to trying to do bits and pieces. So if people have a passion for, you know, public health and advocacy work, happy for people to get in contact. And, and you know, the more people we can get involved, the better. 
Yeah, I love that. And I resonate with doing too many things at once and having a young <laughs> family as well. Um, so we want to talk a lot about what you do do, which is CEO of the ADAVB at the moment. Um, but let's touch on MasterChef. Obviously, a very exciting part in um, your journey. Um, opened a lot of doors. I'm sure like a big part of that is opening those doors of communication and public brand. And therefore, you could leverage that to do sugar-free smiles and some other things. And I love the way you have leveraged that. Um, so there's a bit to talk about there. But why? Why'd you do it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the million-dollar question for which I'm not sure that I have a, a really good answer. Um, it, 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 you know, so like I said, you know, I, I love I love cooking, and I've I've always loved cooking. Um, and I I got really hooked um, on watching MasterChef when it when it first came out. You know, it was it was such an an interesting new show, um, not like anything that had ever been on on telly before, and really really enjoyed it and. After the first season had finished, um, they were calling for for um, applications for the second season, and I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll, I'll apply, and I did, um, and I got through the audition process, and I got down to about the final one hundred, um, and didn't make it past there, and you know, thought, oh well, that's fun. It was a, a fun experience to do that, um, and you know, then got busier and busier with life and all sorts of things, and continued to watch the show, and. In in the this you know the the season of the show before I applied, um, you know I was, I was watching it, really enjoying the show. Um, I I left the university. I'd, I'd moved to another job, and probably one of the things that that really prompted me was that a, a really close mate of mine passed away at a very young age, um, and it just kind of made me rethink everything. Uh, you know um, that 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 life is short, um, and so on a on a bit of a whim, I I applied. Um, I, I may or may not have mentioned it to my wife that I was applying. I didn't. <laughs> I, didn't I didn't expect to 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 get on, um, and in fact, I, I nearly didn't um, because so I did get a call back for auditions, but I was heading overseas for a, a work trip, and um, and so missed the opportunity to to audition, and they said bad luck you know maybe think about next year and then uh you know a couple of months later i got a call back from them they're obviously very desperate for contestants i think I, my my joke is that they have a whiteboard and it's um you know all of the different states and ages and genders and different things and there was just a, a gap for middle-aged dentist in the middle Mid- of the middle-aged dentists, yeah they, that they hadn't quite filled but if you watch the show you know there are there are clearly <laughs> profiles of people and there's the middle-aged professional person um, and I was the that was what was missing. Uh, so yeah, I got a call back and and auditioned and and was fortunate enough to get on the show. Um, and as you say, yeah, you say that as a joke, but it's almost certainly true. I have no I have no doubt that yeah. it's partially true that they <laughs> that they want to have. You know, it's 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 a reality TV show. They want to you know reflect the diversity of the community and all of those sorts of things. So. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful stroke of luck. Um, I imagine you enjoyed it. You're smiling when you talk about it. Um, tell us what was like some of the biggest lessons, I guess, or what did you learn from it about yourself or about cooking or about something? Uh, I mean, a, a lot about cooking, obviously, and um, you know, you, you have to 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 remain on the show as it as it goes along. Um, you have to learn very quickly how to how to cook much much better than when you came into the show. So definitely learned a lot, and and learning from you know, the other contestants and, um, you know, reading and practising and all of those sorts of things. I think resilience um, 
was was really critical. Um, you know, a lot of people may or may not know, but you know, they they lock you up um, for the duration of the filming of your part of the show. So for me, that was about five months um, from from start to when I was finally eliminated. If I was smart, I would have got eliminated first, and I would have only been away for about three weeks. But I was I was stupid and tried to win. Um, and so that's, you know, that's five weeks locked away from family and friends and they take away your phone and your passport and you're allowed to call home, you know, a couple of times a week uh, and no internet, no social media, no anything um, and no control over your life um, and no knowing what's going to happen from day to day. And and it, where, you know, it's, one of those, it's one of those quirks, I guess, but you know, the, the, the time that we're living through at the moment of massive uncertainty um, certainly reminds me of, of some of that time in the MasterChef house where you just don't know what's happening from day to day. And learning to, to cope with uncertainty, um, it teaches you some resilience. And I think that that's, that's really important. So, yeah, I, again, one of those really bizarre kinds of things where I, I think I've learned a lot from the experience unintentionally and then yeah, the, you yeah. know the benefits i guess of you know being on tv uh and then being able to leverage that and that that experience to to then do some of the health promotion stuff that i do now um has been really really valuable yeah that's it, you know you've been able to leverage that really well and i think i think that's a really smart way to do it obviously um and we'll touch on some of that i'm i'm curious how old were your kids at that time uh one of them was finishing uh primary school because I, I nearly missed his graduation but they managed to whisk me away from the from the set to to get across to that so so yeah one would have been in grade six and one would have been in in year eight so but yeah pretty tough time for 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 the for my family you know for me to be away for for that extended period of time um and that and that certainly made the whole process you know difficult i guess and you know, balancing the, the the fun experience for me with the challenges for the family was 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 tough. Yeah, there's no no doubt. A lot of what we see on the TV, you don't really know exact all the background. I guess. Um, tell us what was a week like, just quickly. I'm really interesting. What gives like a week rundown when you're in the MasterChef house or whatever it is? Yeah. So so we like I said, we we lived in a house. Um, with one of the producers um, to keep an eye on us and make sure we didn't run away and do anything, anything. The warden, <laughs> every pretty much, and every every night before we went to bed, there was a whiteboard and it would say, you know, be ready to get on the bus at seven o'clock tomorrow um, for for filming. And sometimes we'd get on the bus and sometimes we wouldn't. Sometimes it'd surprise wake us up at three o'clock in the morning and, and do something. So there was always that, this element of surprise. And so you get ready to go and you'd have to take photos of the clothes that you were wearing and write down what you were wearing for that particular episode. Then you'd, you'd roll into the into the set, spend a bit of time filming everything, driving the cars around, getting, you know, microphones and, and uh, aprons on and all of those sorts of things. Um, and then you'd roll onto the into the kitchen and it'd be surprise, you know, Heston Blumenthal's here or surprise Marco Pierre White's here. You know, we're now doing this and, you know, you have to cook that. And then you'd cook and sometimes it was... Uh, you know, an hour cook, and sometimes you'd be doing challenges that lasted for you know six, eight hours. You know, there were times that we were still filming at midnight. 
Um, so very, very long days. And then, yeah, you'd go, you'd go back to the house and unwind, you'd, you'd cook, you know, maybe every second day, practice on other days. Um, and then at the end of the week, generally they'd film, you know, those little snippets where they're, they're talking to you between the, the cooking. That always happens at the at the end of the week. So you're sort of revisiting things in uh and and talking about things that that have already happened, which was the, for me one of the, the the most difficult things to do because you knew the outcome already. So we've cooked on Monday, I've cooked really well and won the challenge, and you've cooked really badly, David, and 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 lost. But then on Friday or Saturday, <laughs> <laughs> you, your migoring noodles were not quite. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end of the you know, on the Saturday, we'd then go back in. And so this is why you needed to write down all of the clothes that you wore because you go back and you'd put all of those clothes back on again and you say, okay, we're going to now film all the little interviews for episode one. And so I'd have to sit in there and, um, you know, build the drama and pretend that, you know, my, my you know, whatever I'd cooked yeah, was stress and you know, was, yeah, it wasn't yeah. going to work and I'm opening the oven door and I'm really freaked out about it. And then you'd be doing the same interviews going, oh, I'm super confident in the dish that I'm, I'm creating. And then, you know, fireball, go to the ad break, come back, and it turns out that, you know, my dish was better than I thought and unfortunately yours wasn't or something. So, <laughs> you know, you, you're reliving all of these experiences that have already happened where, you know, the outcome is very, very bizarre. It's a, I guess some, one of the skills, I guess, is almost acting, but also the presentation skills. You would have you would have built a lot of that inadvertently, I'm sure. Yeah, I think, I think you know, I, I, I struggled a little bit with that because, because it was acting to an extent, um, you know, and... You know, when when I knew that I'd done something badly, it was hard to pretend that I'd done <laughs> yeah, well. And if yeah. I knew I'd done well, it was hard for me to pretend that I was worried that it was going to go badly. So, yeah, that. But but yeah, I guess you know, it, it has. Um, you know, I guess that dealing with media and with questions and being on camera um, was 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 very useful. Do you ever get used to it? Um, that's I, a personal I think, question. <laughs> I, I, think so. I, I think so. I mean, I. It, it's funny um, because that was all, you know, I, I'd done a lot of media training and media work with the, well, maybe not a lot, but some with with the ADA prior to that. And a lot of the stuff that we'd done was was a little bit more in the defensive mode. You know, what happens if, um, you know, a current affair comes knocking on the door because dentists have done bad things and, you know, you have to be wary about, you know, presenting the profession in a bad light. Um Whereas the MasterChef experience was was all very positive, and I think most of the media that that I've done since then on on dentistry and oral health stuff has tends to be quite quite positive. Um, and we we still run media training now for for our our um, council members, our executive members, our presidents, and I always sit on on the media training and I always learn something new um, from doing that, and but also can share I guess my experiences. I mean, I'm I guess I'm comfortable going on on media now because because I've done enough of it that I don't get as nervous as I used to but I'm always still nervous because you know you, you're talking about a whole profession you're representing a whole profession you want to make sure that you you say things right but I think I, I balance it up with you know the opportunity for us to to be out there um, always raising the profile of, of our profession and talking to people about the importance of good oral health um, you know counteracts any possible nerves that I might have about it um so I, and, it, and it is now one of those things that I that I, I do kind of quite love doing I love that it's like you, you're trying to spin that nervous energy into excited energy or into positive energy and that's something I try to do because like I've done 50 
or maybe 70 interviews or more with the podcast and I still get a bit anxious for each one but it's excitement um, and so it's a natural thing same thing for you know you're the listener with your patients especially early on a little bit anxious maybe with that certain patient that certain situation but obviously you build confidence and it, it definitely that nervousness energy wears away depending on your personality I guess yeah, well, and, and you know, you we, you've just kind of brought us back to the fundamentals of of dentistry, right? Communication is such a key skill, and it's and it's something that some people are very good at naturally, and and others of us have to work at it. But the more that you work at it, the the like everything, the better that you become. And so you've got a learning curve with your clinical work, but you've got a learning curve with your communication. And for me, it was a learning curve on communication related to the media. Um, but yeah, you you. The more you do it, the the better you become, and um, and the easier it becomes to to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so Master Chef, obviously, it was, it was massive. You know, that's where I first heard of you. Of course, most of us <laughs> did, um, and followed your journey and things since. Just going to quickly touch on, you did also write a cookbook after, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> what have, what um, experience did you get from that? I guess, or like, how else did you leverage that personal brand that you'd built? Oh yeah, I mean the 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 best selling cookbook probably wasn't as, as as much of a bestseller as I as I well no, I didn't expect it to be a bestseller at all. It was <laughs> it was more one of those things I think where um you know it, it was a, it was it was a fun thing to do and it was a, a nice sort of way of sort of um capping that that master chef experience. Um you know I think again you know writing um, editing those sorts of things and you know learning a, a few little things on the way but um it's it's more. I guess, you know, the, the whole post-show experience has been, you know, leveraging that idea of talking about healthy eating um, as being part of, um, you, know, a, 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 you know, a healthy life and and good oral health. And, and so, um, you know, positioning the stuff that I talk about in that context, I think, is, is you know, what I, you know, what I really love doing. I think you used it wonderfully too in, in that, you know, the advocacy group, Sugar Free Smiles, the the book, the point of it is healthy eating as well as family involvement and all, all those things that are important. Um, so I, I think it's fantastic. Now, obviously, your main role now, the CEO of um, ADAVB, um, you know, so much that that covers. Um, tell us how you, you were involved with the ADA for quite a while. How did you end up as the CEO? And, um, yeah, tell us a bit about that at the moment. Yeah, well, so I, I first got involved with the ADA back in about two thousand and four or five, I think, and I was on a, I think I started on the CPD committee when I was working at Melbourne Uni, and we did a lot of joint CPD together, and then I stupidly turned up to an annual general meeting of the branch, um, thinking that that's what you know members do. I just come recently come back from Western Australia, so I've been a member all of that time, but you know, being um, you know in the army, I'd sort of not not really been involved too heavily. And I turned up to this annual general meeting and there was a, a vacancy on the on the council. Um, and they said, oh, look, you, you've obviously shown an interest. Would you like to, <laughs> yes, like to go on council? Yes. So, so I did. And, you know, I had, had the most amazing time, 12 years on, I think, on on council. And I had a term as the, as the president back in, I think it's 2011, 12, um, when the whole um, chronic diseases dental scheme was blowing up for, for those of you who are old enough to, to remember that, um, which was a, an interesting time. And then um, I, I kind of felt like I'd, I'd done all of the things that I'd, I'd wanted to do and stepped off. Uh, and I was, you know, I'd spent a little bit of time on the federal council as well, but um, I stepped off um, and was, was focusing on other things. But 
uh, the CEO prior to me, Gary Pearson, you know, been an, an amazing um, mentor and, you know, done an amazing job in the role um, and was the CEO for the entire time that, that I was there on council, um, had decided that, you know, he was going to retire. So the vacancy came up and, you know, I was, I was looking around thinking, well, where where is, you know, my, my skill set best aligned? Um, and it just sort of seemed like a natural fit for me to to get back to the association and to continue to to you know work for the profession and do all of the things that I'd been doing anyway around raising that that you know profile of oral health and talking about things publicly, um, bringing a public health lens to things. Um, but then also you know how do we how do we support our members out there across the country and obviously you know from a Victorian perspective, but you know working with the other branches and and with ADA federally because I think. No one else is out there looking after the profession and and for members of the profession in a way that the ADA does. And and I think we, you know, some people sort of forget that a little bit sometimes. And, you know, there's a whole lot of other things out there. We can get information from social media and we can get information from a range of different sources. But at the end of the day, the ADA is, is, you know, a group of dentists like you and me who have our interests at heart and who will do all of the work that needs to be done to, to help support us. So I just felt that, um, you know, that was that was something that really resonated with me and, you know, fortunate enough to, to get the job and have been doing it now for four years and absolutely loving it. Yeah, I love that. And and really it's that stepping stone, you know, it's the next stepping stone. Again, personal brand, all the other experiences, public health, oral health promotion, like all of that coming together. Um, but then also then fighting for the, you know, the dentists, you know, that's what we're doing with the ADA. Um, obviously, COVID has um, helped remind a lot of us the importance of the ADA. And look, we'll, we'll touch on that um, in just a second. I did want to ask a question. It's a bit broad and it's it's kind of from a point of naivety, but I'm sure a lot of people think the same thing. What are the roles that, as a counsellor, as the president, and then as the CEO, what are these involved? Yeah, so so our our organisations, and you know, I'll talk about Victoria, but it's probably the same across the different branches and, and federally. Is that is that our members elect a council or a board, if you like, um, whose role it is to oversee the governance of the organisation. So we have seventeen elected councillors in Victoria, and they're they're drawn from the membership. People put themselves up for election, and we vote every two years on on the council. Um, and then the council votes in a, an executive from that that group, and there's a president that's elected uh, every year. So we have a, a every year a new president, who is effectively the chair of the the board, if you like. Um, and then we have a, a management team, so employed staff of the of the branch, who do the do the things. Um, so the the board or the council um, sets the strategy. They provide guidance. They say we should be doing this. We, you know, this is this is our um, opinion on or our, our policy statement or our policy position on a particular thing. And then they tell me as the CEO who heads up the, the management group, this is this is how we have to do things. And then I'm my job as the CEO is to, is to make that happen. So we have a team of uh, a CPD team who run all of our events and uh, a, a team of community relations officers who work with dentists around providing, you know, advice and support and, and management of uh, complaints and helping uh, dentists to deal with with complaints. We have a policy and research team who um, are out there sort of scouring the environment, figuring out what's going on, have been 
enormously important over this this COVID period. Um, uh, and then a communications team whose whose role it is to, you know, get messages out, um, newsletters, websites, um, getting out into and, and managing our membership, getting out to to universities, talking to students, and all of those sorts of things. So, so my role, I guess, is to is to kind of coordinate and make all of that happen um, at the direction of the of the council um, and and uh, that board of directors the, and the president. Yeah. Okay. I hope that. Yeah. I love that overview. Actually, I think that really is helpful. I hope the question's not too naive. No, no, because, I think it's a um, great, great question. Well, in the end, I guess it does relate very much just to a normal business. You've got the CEO and the management team. You've got the team under that, and then you've got the board, board directors, and and the the president, the chair, whatever. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, people out there, if you're part of the ADA and you know you want to be a councillor now, you know that 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 is a, you know you can do that as a part of a membership. And definitely, I mean, I'd really encourage people to to stick their hand up and get involved in a committee, or to to nominate and and uh, run for election, um, and you know keep trying. It's it's a it's not an easy um, job to get elected to to the to the council, um, but don't be discouraged if you if you put yourself up and and don't get in the first time round. Uh, but you know, I think the more people that we have expressing an interest, getting involved, and getting some diversity. Um, of of people on our on our on our boards because if there's one thing that we know it's it's diversity um, really improves decision making um, and and outcomes for people so we're really keen to get as many people involved as possible. Probably already filled the middle aged dentist role. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I suspect that we've we've it's you know it's 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 been a been a long standing criticism that that um, <laughs> you know that we we have that demographic very well covered. So you know, and, and, and I and I guess if you know we're really keen therefore to to expand our diversity and and get more younger dentists um, involved in the in the association because you know I mean this is going to sound a bit a bit naff but it's you know you're the future of the profession um, and and it won't be people like me well hopefully it won't be people like me leading the profession in in 10 or 15 years time it'll be people like you um, and and people who are listening to this and so that's I think what we really want to encourage is that involvement and um, bringing in the, the fresh ideas we go back to the very start when we're talking about what's changed in dentistry you know so much has changed in 25 years and the perspective that I bring to any decisions or anything that we do is informed by you know the way that I've, I've gone through dentistry I guess and your perception of things will be different from mine because you, you've gone through a different a different experience and so having two sets of eyes on something is is really really valuable and having people with a different perspective is really really valuable in my in my opinion that's such a good call to action really and obviously the dental head start podcast it's aimed at students and graduates so a lot of listening and obviously the podcast that adavb has just released um dental dental central um you know a lot of people listen to this i hope that inspires some tell us a bit about the podcast it's just been released what's going on there yeah, so we, we we thought we'd jump on the podcast bandwagon because you know everyone else. I, I was having a, a discussion with a mate of mine, and we we were just chewing the fat about dentistry, as as often when two dentists get into a room <laughs> yeah. together, they yeah. they end up doing. And at the end of it all, he said, "You know, you really should you really should do a podcast." Um, and I thought, well, I don't really have enough to do with my time, and I've you know all of this all of this spare time that I have. Why don't we do that? But it you know it is a good. Um, 
opportunity to talk to to people in a in a different way and and this is the you know i guess how do we modernize our associations and some of the things that we do you know we've traditionally communicated by a newsletter um and in the olden days that that newsletter was printed uh, a month before it was sent out and australia post would get it to you and so the news was you know four weeks six weeks old before you got it and that's just the way the world used to operate 50 years ago um, and now we expect our news much more more rapidly, and we want to get that information in a different in a different way. And and people like listening to things rather than reading things. So we just thought it, it was a good opportunity to to um, you know go to a different a different platform to a different audience. Um, and I think to do these sorts of things, I think to have conversations with people um, that's not quite the same when it's in the written format and you know you can really delve into into people's thinking much much better so you know hopefully it will it will um kind of kick off and uh you know we'll get a few more listeners i have no doubt like obviously i'm in love with the audio medium but um i'm sure many of our listeners are it's 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 something you can do in exercising you do it when you're driving you can but you can immerse yourself in this conversation and really get the insights like right now we're learning more about matt hopcraft than anyone's known you know for the last 10 years in the dental space at least um so like i love this and that's what excites me about it so yes i think it's fantastic good job (laughs) um now obviously uh talking about news and four week old news right now would be a nightmare because every day things are changing obviously with COVID-19 particularly um, for the um, Victorians and Melbourne and then also obviously right now for Sydney um, tell us how's that been um, <laughs> anything you want to cover there we won't touch too much but yeah well I mean obviously you know the, the last 18 months or so has been tough for everyone and um, you know for me you know the 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 workload has has been immense for the for the team that we have, but um, again, it, it just goes back to our role to su- to support people um, and you know trying to stay on top of things. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to to government, to people in the Department of Health, you know, health ministers, um, and really just trying to raise the awareness of the importance of oral health. And I think that's a message that we that we're slowly starting to get through is that is that access to oral health care is really important. And when we defer access to care, we have the potential to create problems. And I think in in this sort of ongoing work that we do, we're starting to get more and more people recognising that actually, you know, dental care is really critical um, and it's not something that should sort of sit aside. So, you know, it's it's been challenging times, um, but I think... Broadly, a lot of our, our advocacy work has been effective and it's been difficult with different approaches in different states. And, you know, as, as we're sitting here, different approaches in, in New South Wales and in Victoria. And I know that, that that challenges and vexes our members when they see different things happening, which is just a reflection of our different governments, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I think we will, you know, m- my message to people is I think, you know, we will come out of the other side of this. Um, but to you know, to take care of yourself because uh, you know emotionally, mentally, this is this is really really challenging. Um, one of the things actually, and I'll, I'll, I'll flag this now because if I say it and it's recorded, then it will force me to do it. Um, but I've been <laughs> w- working on getting a research project up and running, looking at stress and burnout um, in in general practitioners. It's something we know uh, is is you know really really <clears throat> excuse me really prevalent in our in our profession. Um, I read an excellent book called Burnout by Gordon Parker, who's a psychiatrist uh, 
at the University of New South Wales and uh, works with the Black Dog Institute. And I've been talking to him about, you know, rolling this research project out through Evident, which is our practice-based research network that we run. So hopefully um, that'll be something that, that we can get out there soon and, and get a better understanding of, of stress and burnout in our profession and then use that as as a tool to to look at ways that we can help support people because I know all of the people that I've been speaking to over the last eighteen months, um, this has been a, a, the toughest period that we've seen in our profession for such a long time. Yeah, that's um, uh, it, that speaks to my heart. It's something that I really like to to help promote and get out there and help people with and talk about because we all experience these things: burnout and stress and the challenges, mental health challenges. You can't look after other people if you're not looking after yourself and if you're not well. Um, Absolutely, it's so so important. We've had people like Annalene Weston on talking about burnout and others on the podcast. Um, just a question: Do you know about the dental support service run by Turning Point in Victoria? No, um, so we we have a we have a support service through the the uh, dental association um, that our members can access, um, and it's and it's a free confidential anonymous service. Uh, turning point that's not the one run by the dental board. That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's so, supported by the dental board. Yep. Yeah. So the the dental board rolled that program out. I think last year. Yeah. Um. I, I, the problem with this pandemic is that I've lost all sense of time now, and it's hard to know whether things, yeah. <laughs> whether things happened last week or or, or two years ago. Um, and so, yeah, we were involved in talking to to the dental board about about their program as well. And I know a lot of people have concerns because it's linked to the board, and you know, the how anonymous is it, and will information be fed up to the board? Very similar to the support service that that we offer, the member assistance program. It's it's arms length to us, and the the board's one is arms length to them. And you know, I, I know Murray Thomas, the chair of the board, quite well. We were you know both in the army together. Um, I'm really confident that. Um, you know, if if you use any of these services, ours or the or the the turning point one, that um, that that information is completely anonymous. And you know, I, I yeah, encourage people to use a service if they feel like they have to, and not not feel like that information ever gets back to us. The only thing I get reported back to us um, from from our member assistance program is that a person used the service, and then I pay the bill. Um, and and that, that it's just like one one person this month or 10 p- people this month i don't know age i don't know gender i don't know location in the state i get five hours we use this month please pay the bill and i pay the bill um so completely anonymous use use that service use any service but you know yeah if you, if you need um some help and assistance call one of your friends but definitely um always always reach out for help that's yeah, really great that you touched on those really important points. Confidentiality is key, and both your the ADA service and then the um, dental support service, um, who who are trying to promote through the um, podcast to get the word out there. Um, it, it's yeah, completely confidential. Really important if you need it. Let's start wrapping things up. Obviously, Matt, you've got a lot to do. You're a busy man, and it's a busy day. Um, I want to ask you two key questions at the end. One is um, your mission: helping people has become health advocacy, oral health advocacy, and um, working, you know, in a more public sense and a more public um, um, health promotion sense, um, what would you have gone back and changed to do it better or faster or is your path exactly okay the way it is? <laughs> That's a, such a great question. I mean, I you know, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, and, you know, I, do, doing some of these things earlier, harder, faster, yeah, would, would definitely have been great. 
but some of it is has been you know it, it it it's been a progression of things and and i'm not sure that i necessarily could have done things much much different i probably would have tried to have been more proactive um in in a media sense earlier on in my career and it's one of the the, the funny lessons that i learned um a little while ago was a was a um writing course for the for, for media you know how to how to write things for for print media and the the key lesson out of that was um write your conclusion first in the first paragraph and then build the case from there which is the exact opposite of everything that we've ever been told in, in you know in in science writing and it's because when people are reading things they read the first paragraph and if they don't like it they just disappear and go and read something else more and more so now so at least get the message out there and and it kind of flipped my way of thinking about how we communicate science to people um and that you know so much of my academic career was around publications for journals for other scientists to read and it was all very insular rather than thinking now about publication research whatever for a wider audience you know who are we trying to influence in it and it's it's the general public and it's about raising awareness in in the general public so that flipping that on the head if I'd if I'd come to that notion earlier and if anyone's out there who who is in the advocacy space um really thinking about who your audience is and getting messages geared to them really important that's a really good point it's like it touches on that access we have immense access now and so does the general public so if you're doing like professional papers and um, publications they may be read by the public they may be read by journalists if you're writing it in a way that's captivating attention you might actually have a bigger impact it's really interesting it's amazing when you learn about audio and um, written and all the different ways we can present content it's actually makes a huge impact last question and i ask it for everyone um all those dentists out there, they're halfway through their final year. It's been a stressful couple of years for them, uh, particularly with COVID. Um, they're about to graduate and you want to, you can teach all of them one key thing. It can be anything in the space. What is that key lesson you'd like to teach every single dentist about to graduate? I think, I think it's not really a, it's not really a lesson, but I think, I think it's, it's trust yourself that, you know, that you, that you know what you're doing you've gone through a, a good education um, and that you like everyone else in our profession will learn and grow along the way. So, so trust in your own, in your own abilities. Um, and a, a little lesson that I've been, you know, sort of applying and probably actually, you know, I went into MasterChef with this one, but it's a saying that, that perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, and really what that means is that, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's okay to be good at something while we're striving for perfection. And if we always try and make something absolutely perfect, sometimes we risk just doing something that, that's good and good is okay. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, people sometimes misinterpret that saying as, you know, you're telling people to not strive for perfection. No, absolutely, we strive for perfection. Um, but sometimes knowing that, that you've done something and it's good and that that helps someone in a, in a healthcare sense um, is is really good, um, and that we risk. I think you risk kind of um, some inertia if you if you're waiting. And, and you know, we see this in I, I guess in sort of my public health space or the advocacy space. If you try and develop the perfect campaign and you don't put it out until you've crossed every T and dotted every I, and you think that it's absolutely perfect, you might have missed an opportunity a week ago or a month ago to get something out. 
Um, and sometimes it is just better to to get it to a stage where you're happy and it's good. So uh, that they would be my two pieces of advice: to trust yourself um, and to and to not not be afraid um, that you know what you're doing is good and to keep working on perfection. Yeah, that's it. Perfectionism can be a problem. And so yeah, prolific beats perfect. You are doing a great job if it's good. Um, and as long as you're doing something and it's not inhibiting you trying to get perfect. Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft, you want to be called Matt, but you need the accreditation where it's due. You've been doing so much for the industry, so much for Victoria and dentists and oral health. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Dental Head Start podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, David. I have really, really enjoyed the chat. The Author Ed Institute, run by Dr. Jeff Hall, is launching the 2022 Mini Masters program, and it's open now for registration. With nine core modules delivered over two years and a fully accredited postgrad diploma, you'll cover everything you need to know about orthodontics, from diagnosis and treatment planning to clear aligners, TMJ therapy, and sleep apnea. If you're interested in upping your ortho game, you can get 10% off their entire range of courses through Dental Head Start. To access our discount codes and for more information on all the courses available, visit dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed. You'll also find all our segments that we've been recording throughout the year to bring you a unique perspective from both behind and in the chair. Follow along as David undertakes his author ed mini masters and documents his personal journey planning his own author treatment and getting aligners at the same time. Thanks to all your support throughout July, we'll be able to help sponsor a regular dental checkup for 15 patients who are otherwise unable to receive it. It's crazy to think how something we may take for granted could make a world of difference to someone else. This is all thanks to B1G1 and their partnership with the Bombay Mothers and Children Society in India. This month, we've picked a new B1G1 project, and that's to help provide dental training for teachers in Morocco, a project managed by the Dental Mavericks. We all know how important dental education is and that prevention is always better than treatment. This project aims to lend support to an oral hygiene program delivered to parents and teachers for basic dental training such as applying fluoride. Let's see what difference we can make this month. Every listen, share or repost you guys make helps us help others and we hope it inspires you to do the same. Check out our giving page at dentalheadstart.com giving to see how you can contribute too. Every little bit counts. I know it might seem small, but B1G1 shows us how it could help change someone else's life. Well, that's it from me today. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.